Tom Bennett here with the Media Law Podcast. In our final show before the academic summer break, we discuss the Supreme Court's judgment in Le Show, a bizarre Brexit libel case, and the privacy implications of recording Boris Johnson having a domestic. Hello listeners. A word of apology just before we get started for the strange ghostly noises on Paul's microphone. We're not quite sure what caused those. We've done our best to tidy them up, but uh, this is the best we can do. Today I am joined as usual by my co-host Paul Rag. Hi Paul. Hi Tom. Uh, We're going to look at three issues uh, in our final podcast of the year that have recently arisen. Two of them uh, concern the law of defamation and one potentially the law of privacy. Um, So first we're going to consider the Supreme Court's recent decision in the case of Le Show and Independent Print. Uh, Listeners who've uh, listened to earlier podcasts will recognize this case this is the case brought by the businessman Bruno Lachaud in respect of allegations that he had been abusing various laws in the uh, UAE to take revenge on his estranged wife. The case uh, is to do with section one, subsection one of the Defamation Act 2013 and uh, how that provision is to be interpreted. Uh, Very briefly, the High Court had said that Section 1, Subsection 1's requirement uh, that the claimant demonstrate the existence of or the likelihood of serious reputational harm in order to found a claim in defamation meant that libel was in effect no longer actionable per se, that some sort of tangible proof of harm would be required, uh, although in a very serious case, this could be inferred from the seriousness of the words used, but ordinarily, some extraneous evidence would be required. The Court of Appeal upheld the conclusion of the High Court, but not its reasoning. Um, preferring to uh, say that the preferring the notion that section one subsection one did not fundamentally alter the common law relating to libel being actionable per se, and uh, suggesting that in all instances uh, an inference as to serious harm could be drawn from the seriousness of the words used. The Supreme Court has now handed down its decision and clarified the position, and essentially it has reinstated the reasoning of Mr. Justice Warby in the High Court. The judgment, there was only one judgment given down by the Supreme Court, and that was by Lord Sumption. Uh, It's quite a short judgment, um, but it demonstrates a high degree of contextual awareness and really gets into, I think, uh, evidence of Parliament's intention. Um, and makes plain that Parliament intended to raise the bar above the common law position um, and that requiring some extraneous proof 
of harm or a likelihood of harm to reputation is consistent with Parliament's intention. And so that's where we are. Uh, now, as Paul well knows, I have been very critical of the Court of Appeals decision in the show. Um, so I, for one, am delighted to see uh, Mr. Justice Warby's approach to dealing with this reinstated as a matter of statutory interpretation. That's not to say that I think this is a good development in the in the law of defamation. Um, I think this is a deeply problematic development in the law of defamation, but I do think that it is one that Parliament intended. Uh, so uh, on that basic principle that a statute where clear, at least reasonably clear, should be uh, given effect to, then I think that the, the decision is a better one than the one reached by the Court of Appeal. So, Tom, do you feel like we're inching ever closer to the American standard of defamation that we see in New York Times and Sullivan? Oh, this is the actual malice rule. Yeah. Claims. Um, no, not really. Um, I mean, I suppose, I mean, anyway, you could say we're inching closer, but it's a very, very long way away. Mm. Um, uh, I, I think that this, I, I think if you look at the context of the way that the statute, the, the parliamentary discussions unfolded around the Defamation Act, a, a number of much more stringent drafts of uh, the statute were put forward and rejected. So these would have been versions and proposals that would have made it much, much more difficult to bring the libel claim than Section 1 ended up being. Um, and I think some of those suggestions would have taken us closer yeah. to the New York Times standard. But I think what you see is Parliament really very clearly rejecting that. Uh, and what they're trying to do is keep the law within the basic framework of English libel law, the way it has been for a very long time, um, whilst making some tweaks to it. Mm. I, I see this as a tweak. Um, it does up the standard of the evidence that needs to be presented to bring a claim. But that's about it. Uh, and I think that's a manageable, a manageable change. I, I don't see it as a radical fundamental change that, that completely rebalances um, the relationship between the right to reputation and freedom of expression. Now, you mentioned that you see this as, as bad in principle. Is that because uh, you see Michael Tuggenhat's decision in Thornton as a perfectly sensible, adequate solution? So, Tuggenhat, Jay's judgment in Thornton, um, for anyone not familiar with it, uh, this was a case in around about 2010 in the High Court where the judge looked at the common law of libel and said, well, what you can see in it is a threshold test of seriousness. Um, he uses the term serious 
and substantial interchangeably in that judgment. But in essence, he says, there's a threshold of seriousness. And if your claim is not a serious one, uh, viz, if you are not alleging some sort of serious harm to your reputation, then um, your claim doesn't even get off the ground. Um, as a matter of semantics, it looks very much like what the Defamation Act 2013 did was replicate that. But it's it's clear that what they in, what Parliament intends by the word serious and what Mr. Justice Tugendhat intended were quite different. Mm. Tugendhat and Thornton was looking at the common law as it existed and kind of summarizing the position. How can we take the three different tests for defamation that have been elaborated popularly over the last couple of hundred years and summarize them neatly? And he locates in them a common thread. So he's deriving the threshold of seriousness from the precedents that he's looking at and with which anyone who studies libel law will be familiar. What Parliament's doing is adding a new threshold on top of that. Um, so I think it's problematic, yes, because Thornton was adequate, but Thornton was adequate because the common law was adequate before. And in my view, um, I, I have long taken the view that the law of defamation as it has stood for the last 50, 100 years as common law strikes a sensible balance between reputation and freedom of expression. Yeah, And so I have been very skeptical of this project to make, to rebalance defamation law in a way that gives more prominence to freedom of expression. I think what mm -hmm. we risk doing there is licensing the traducement of reputations en masse. Yeah. Um, I recognize there are problems to do with costs and so on and so forth. And I, I, I welcome changes that make libel litigation less expensive. Um, but this particular change, I'm not convinced by. Um, yeah. That said, for the reasons I've given, it is what Parliament intended. And um, I think the Court of Appeal was barking up the wrong tree in trying to, so far as I can see, trying to just negate the impact of the statute. And do you, just uh, following on on that point, do you think now, in terms of the, the sort of practical complexities, that we're going to have to have a preliminary hearing on every occasion uh, on harm, the question of harm, whether it's sufficient? Uh, yes. Because surely that's going to add extra costs if we do have to have um, this preliminary hearing. Uh, it's going to add extra costs to the straightforward, straightforward claim. Well, let's not forget that we already have to have preliminary hearings in libel cases for the purpose of determining meaning. Um, that's been common practice since juries decided libel cases. You'd get a preliminary hearing where the judge would decide in the range of meanings that would be put to the jury. And since jury trials been effectively abolished by the 2013 Act, that preliminary hearing process remains because it's necessary for 
the defense to know which defenses it can run and how to run them for a, a determination on meaning to have come down first. So mm-hmm. what we're talking about doing is using that preliminary hearing on meaning also to establish whether there is either is or is a likelihood of serious reputational harm. Now that might well mean that that preliminary hearing has to be more extensive than it was. Maybe it's a whole day instead of a half day. Maybe it's two days instead of one day. Um, And uh, Mr. Justice Warby, I think, made that quite clear in his original high court judgment in the show that that was what would need to happen. And uh, if memory serves, he did in fact conduct such a preliminary hearing and it took a couple of days. Yeah. Um, Now, that's not great from a costs perspective. Um, There are, of course, other uh, provisions in the 2013 Act that uh, reduce costs in other parts of the litigation. Um, But ultimately, A, I I think it's probably worth it um, to at least come to a conclusion on that point rather than leap into trial not knowing, um, because that would be significantly costlier. And B, Parliament has to be taken to have known the procedural implications of the provision it was putting in place. They may not have done, but we have to proceed on the basis when interpreting the statute that Parliament did know that. Um, and so they intended that this be the the way in which this was done. Yeah. And speaking of libels, should we talk about a strange libel case that's just happened or not happened? You must be talking about the Brexit libel. Uh, this is um yes this this really caught my eye the other week um it's kind of a passing headline on 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 the news somewhere or, or other um but it struck me as very odd so i looked into it a little bit more and it still strikes me as odd so there is a, a scottish member of parliament for the scottish national party called alan smith and he made an allegation about the Brexit party. This is Nigel Farage's new Eurosceptic party. And he called them, uh, he said that the Brexit party was a money laundering front. Okay, so that's the allegation. The chairman of the Brexit party, Richard Tice, began a libel proceedings against Alan Smith. Um, which Smith pretty quickly settled out of court. And it's the settling uh, that I find um, rather unsettling, um, if you'll forgive me, because there's a pretty basic principle in English libel law that you cannot libel a political party. Political parties have no standing to bring a a defamation claim at all under any circumstances. It is possible for individual politicians or individual members of a political party or political group to bring a libel claim if the sting of the libel is directed at those individuals in terms where a reasonable reader would understand them to be directed at 
that individual or those individuals. But I don't see how the Brexit party is a money laundering front identifies Richard Tice. I, I, I should imagine the number of people in the country who know that Richard Tice is chairman of the Brexit party is pretty small. Um, so I don't see how he is picked out as an individual in the eyes of a reasonable reader by that particular statement, leaving it really only being the Brexit party who is affected, and the Brexit party shouldn't have standing. Yeah. So what's going on? That's my that's mm. my question. This is bizarre. Yeah. Something doesn't add up. Either we're not being told something, or somebody here has not been terribly well advised. Yeah, that's certainly how it sounds. This is quite troubling in respect to freedom of speech. If we're now having political parties, especially newly established and let's just say controversial political parties, issuing libel claims to clamp down on dissent from opposition parties, um, this, isn't this quite worrying? Uh, yes. I mean, the whole intellectual climate is worrying. Politics is worrying. Um, the... Any student of history, of course, saw that the... Uh, the Nazis did something very similar during the Third Reich, and that didn't end so well. But they also clamped down on dissents of uh, political parties. Right. Privacy time. And we need to talk about Boris Johnson. Um, what 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 happened here, Paul? Um, you 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 followed the news on this. Um, there was a row, wasn't there? So there were, yes. So there was a row uh, uh, allegedly of involving uh, Boris Johnson and his uh, partner uh, in the privacy of their own home. Uh, which was recorded uh, by their neighbour and uh, that row uh, and the details of that row were then passed on to the Guardian um, for whom it was front page news uh, and has sparked uh, a debate about Boris Johnson's credentials uh, as a uh, leader or future leader uh, of the country and of course it's become a political um bone to hit him over the head with. So what we saw in The Guardian were sort of quotes from this row. Um, we didn't get a blow-by-blow -blow account of it, and I'm not suggesting there that there were, that there were any blows inflicted on anyone. But um, we, we didn't get a, a detailed account of exactly what happened, but we got some choice quotes. Yeah. From, uh, the, the, that apparently both uh, Johnson and his partner had yelled at one another. Yeah. Um, the police were called. The police thought there was nothing to worry about, and you know, they knocked on the door and 
everything seemed better and, and uh, for whatever reason nobody got arrested no further investigations inquiries over at which point this recording gets which which the neighbor said was taken in order to provide evidence for the police once the police didn't want it was then um, sent to the guardian and it became a big political story yeah um, now, I saw an interesting post on the Inform blog by uh, Zoe McCallum, who's barrister at Matrix. It was a few days after the incident, um, in which she explores the possibility that this uh, recording and publication of the details of the row might have been an actionable invasion of privacy in the sense of a misuse of private information under English law, although she ultimately concludes that it wouldn't be because the balance between public interest and privacy would come down on the side of publication in this case. Um, and that got me thinking, because you know, first couple of days after it happened, my instinctive reaction was, you know, that's just Boris, right? <laughs> but... Then I started thinking, have have I missed have I missed a misuse of private information? Me, of all people, have I missed a misuse of private information here? Um and I started thinking about it. And the more I started thinking about it, the more I started to think, you know what? I think this probably is a misuse of private information. But I strongly suspect that you will disagree with that. I do disagree. I suppose I put the emphasis on misuse. Uh, I, I can readily agree that uh, this engages a reasonable expectation of privacy. I don't think there's any principled issues to to disagree about there. So why would that be? Just because it's taking place at home and it's a domestic yeah. This is a this is a sort of classic example. I think of of. Um, what we would call privacy. This is two individuals, two grown adults in their own home having uh, a, a heated discussion, let's say, uh, which has been recorded um, by the neighbour. Um, I, I can't think of a more textbook example of, of privacy. I mean, here the, the, the suggestion was that there was some element of wrongdoing going on. Mm -hmm. okay, but, but if we if we take that out of it, we've got a, a conversation between two adults being recorded by a third party without their knowledge. That that for me is is private. Um, so I don't have any problems uh, in saying that, but um, I don't attach uh, a, a great deal of weight, particularly to the private information uh, at stake. Um, it was uh, a row using loud voices in circumstances in which it's bound to be overheard uh, through the walls, or at least there's a risk of it being heard through the walls. So you could, a judge here could apply the discounts that we saw applied in AAA in Associated Newspapers. Oh, I wonder why that case is relevant. And I was going to say, I mentioned that case pointedly. Um, <laughs> so, so, so there's that. Um, but... The flip side, and I think the strongest argument is, I would see this as a as a matter of uh, public interest, uh, as a result of the political system that we now have in place, which 
people like Boris Johnson have inculcated, which is the emphasis on uh, the leader of a party being a sort of self-styled president in which that individual has the ultimate responsibility for making political decisions that affect the, the country. And I think we've this isn't, as we all know, we've moved away from the idea of the prime minister being the the um, the equal among equals um, to more of a presidential style cabinet. And so the question of him as an individual, his character becomes vitally important to that debate. So I think that's a really good point. I want to come back to the political climate and uh, the rise of the the strong man, as it's been put in some places, or indeed strong woman. Um, but just in terms of working through this one methodologically, yeah. Um, the row takes place in 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 this apartment. It can be heard by the neighbours, which is why they get concerned and why they call the police. It can be heard so loudly by the neighbours that it can be recorded on a mobile phone through the wall. Yeah. Um, if there is a misuse. I mean, the misuse part of misuse of private information comes in. I tend well, the factual misuse or the invasion or the point at which the wrongful act takes place. If there is indeed a, if it turns out to be declared wrongful, the act takes place. Um, when in this case is it the recording that's problematic, or is it? the publication of some details gleaned from the recording by The Guardian. Because um, I can see reasons why recording could be justified, but I think, I, think, and I think there are lots of different circumstances in which it could be justified for different reasons, depending on how things turned out. I mean, if there was violence, for instance, and the police did then need the evidence, then presumably we would say, well, yes, it engages Article 8 of the Convention, but it's justified. Um, yeah. So I think that the recording has to be considered a potentially privacy-invading act. Um, well, if, we, if we're going to scrutinise it at that level, which we should, um, I would agree with you that I think the act of recording is the tort-easing element and that the subsequent dissemination um, goes to the sort of s- goes to the later stage where we're thinking about the strength of the wrongdoing, if that makes sense. So it, w- it would sort of go to the question of damages, I suppose. But I still don't think it's very neat. I mean, that's my. I mean, it's my long-standing issue with misuse of private information as a doctrine. It works very, very well, and conceptually it's pretty sound when you're dealing with publication, disseminating the information through the newspaper. But the acquisition of the information, and I know there are a couple of cases which tell us that non-consensual acquisition of the information engages Article 8 and is thus a tort-feasing act for the purposes of misuse of private information, but it isn't anything like is conceptually neat, in my view. Part part of the part of that is because of the way that our law is structured. So, if we cast our eyes uh, lovingly across the pond just for a moment and think about the way that William Prosser um, 
derived the privacy torts from the American case law. You know, he makes a he makes a fundamental distinction that we do not make, which is he distinguishes between an act of privacy intrusion and the dissemination of uh, embarrassing facts. So what we could do on process analysis is to say that the neighbor committed the tortious act of intrusion by recording the information, and then the guardian uh, committed the act of uh, disseminating embarrassing facts by publishing that information. And so that got two distinct torts, two distinct tortious acts. Yes, that would be conceptually much neater. But of course, we don't have a recognized tort of intrusion in this country. So we end up having to shoehorn all of this into misuse of private information, as we can be is, and which is terribly irksome. Although... Um, Although, just on this point, let me make a quick plug for my new article, which appears in the 78th issue of Cambridge Law Journal, at roughly page 409, in which I make exactly this point, and I argue that we should recognise a uh, intrusion tort. There you go. And if you feel that you might not agree with uh, Paul on this, then keep an eye out for my article coming out in the Oxford Journal of Legal Studies at some point a little bit later in the summer, in which I take a rather different view of uh, conceptualising privacy and the difficulties with it. But there's our our plugging done. Um, let's let's talk about the public interest point. Because, Before we get uh, onto that, Tom. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, just another just another point that I think emerges from this, which is which is interesting since we're scrutinising the component parts. Let's think about the role of the partner in this and, and whether there's anything interesting to to pull out of that. So you've got these two adults that are having a fight and let's say that the politician amongst them realises that this row could be embarrassing to them should it be publicly known and let's say this politician also realises that the walls are, are thin and that the neighbours can can at least hear and potentially record what's happening. Now, if we're thinking about tort liability, is there any liability to be attached to the actions of the other partner who is the one that is speaking loudly and is, I think, in the recordings, the one that is the, the clearest? And also, just along those same lines, does that alter our sense of what we mean by a misuse of private information? Because if she's speaking with reckless abandon to the point where she doesn't care, apparently, who hears or who doesn't hear, and it's her information that's being disclosed, is there a conceivable misuse of private information? Um, So this is kind of... um a bizarre variant on the old kiss and tell story um, scenario. So we've got the individual who is who's sort of shouting about private matters in such a way as they can be overheard. I can envisage situations where you could do that because I mean, if you have the kiss, the classic kiss and tell scenario, you certainly could, you can have that. So it's not a million miles removed from it. 
I don't think any court is ever going to impose liability on a partner of a politician in that situation. But I think what you've usefully done there is highlight another problem with the methodology that we adopt, which is we're, when you are looking at information in a kind of ownership sense, whose information is it, rather than who is going to be harmed by its dissemination, um, I think that leads you down a very particular path. Mm. It is her information. Yeah. And so she has a right to dispose of it in the way that she sees fit. And yes, there have been some exceptions to that when the courts say, well, we have to balance one against the other. Public interest comes into play. So we need to talk about that in a moment. But that is all a symptom of the fact that we still think of privacy in property-like terms. Whose information is it? Well, and I think I think that's right. I suppose what I'm getting at here with this example is, you know, we're talking about the neighbour being the tort visa here, um, but actually, just by adjusting our lens slightly, we could also think of the partner being the tort visa or the cause, because uh, she is the the literal cause of this information being known. And so what this sort of introduces in a way that I don't think previous case law does is to think about whether there's a sort of sense of... If we looked at this through the lens of negligence, we'd be talking about contributory negligence. So whether there's a sort of sense of contribution here, which in some way should affect the ultimate balance that takes place, as happened in AAA. Yes. I'll need to think more about that, but I think you're right that there's an issue there that we need to work through. AAA has opened that door. Yeah. And, and I mean, I've criticised AAA because I'm not... I don't find this idea of a discount particularly useful. And I, I won't go on about this because we've spoken about it before. But the terminology that the courts use is all numerically based. All this talk of balancing and weighing the, the, the value of the different sides is as if we can make some kind we can put some kind of numerical value on the claims. And and this idea of discount, of course, speaks clearly to this uh, this property, yeah. Um, yeah. which of course is a bit of a nonsense because how do you make a discount against something if you don't know what the original value was? Trying to deal with a qualitative issue in quantitative terms. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't work. It fundamentally no, it it never worked. It's, no. it's the problem of incommensurability, um, which arises whenever you're dealing with trying to balance a privacy against a free speech. Now, how many privacies are worth a free speech? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, th there is that. There is certainly the, the you know, apples and oranges issue, but it's, it's the sort of lack of clarity in what constitutes uh, a strong public interest claim. I am in danger of repeating what I've said in earlier podcasting, but... Um, the, the difficulty is that because the court puts such a high value on public interest expression, it almost treats it, in fact, I think it does treat it as a kind of absolute, and you can't start dividing up absolutes. 
by adding adjectives like strong absolute or weak absolute because it, it just makes no sense as a matter of reason. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the public interest in this then. So what, what's your view on that? Well, I'm inclined to agree with you on the point that you make about the nature of our political leaders these days. Something that really struck me during the 2017 general election was the extent to which the Conservative Party campaign was highly personalized around Theresa May. So you had, it was all about Theresa's team, back Theresa and Theresa's team, um, which I think leads, lends itself to in, enormous problems in terms of legitimacy, given our constitutional setup, where, you know, as is about to happen, the prime minister can be, in effect, forced out of office and another one appointed who hasn't got that electoral mandate was intensely personal insofar as there was a mandate and of course there wasn't a, a majority government elected um, uh, in any event but whatever mandate there was was intensely personal yeah I, I think we see the same with johnson um i mean you just need to take a look at his leadership campaign um slogan going on at the moment which is back boris i mean you don't get personal than that and you know if if there is another general election in the near future i imagine you'll see exactly the same very very intensely personal back boris Mm. type campaign um now your point is that where you have these sorts of political figures that are no longer just the first among equals but are instead you know a, a serious powerful entity in their own right more like a monarch or a president then that increases the legitimacy of detailed scrutiny, not just on um, things they do, but their their mental state, their decision making, yeah. values, and you know that opens the door to things like how does he treat a female partner in a relationship behind closed doors if there is an argument? Yeah. Um, how many children does he have? Is that right? yeah well you know I, I i worry that there that we are going to struggle seriously struggle to separate the private from the public when that happens and we might mm-hmm. say that with someone like johnson it's a case of chickens coming home to roost yeah but i still cleave to the notion that it ought to be possible to at, at least at a level of generality separate out private matters from public matters yeah and say, still, there is, okay, there may be some public, I mean, the way to do it is to say properly, there is some public interest in this, but query whether there is sufficient public interest to warrant the harm that may be done to the claimant and to the claimant's family, others connected with the claimant. I, I think in, in Johnson's case, the the reputational harm, I say reputation, it's not, it's not, a libel case, but the harm to his private life, including his reputation, which is part of Article 8, the harm to his private life is likely to be pretty minimal from this. Um, I don't see a way in which his children, however many there might be, (laughs) are directly or indirectly affected by it because clearly there were no children present in this situation. The partner does have privacy interests, but... um, I would have thought the public interest just about wins out here. Um, 
But in a situation where, for instance, there were children present at the time, I can certainly envisage you not to. For me, it's a very, very close run thing. And without having had, and I hasten to add, without having had access to all of the facts in the way that a judge would, I cannot come to a comprehensive conclusion on that. But my instinct is it's very, very close. Um, Because much as there are many controversial things that this man has said and done, Mm. this particular incident is one of the most private of which I've heard in recent times. And I'm not comfortable saying, oh, this is definitely public interest. I, 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 I won't come out and say that. I think it's likely to be a close-run thing. I would not be at all surprised if we were to conclude on all the facts that it is sufficiently in the public interest to justify publication. But I think it's going to be close. Yeah. See, I, did, I disagree strongly, but um, I probably don't need to go on and on about the reasons why, because any, anyone that's interested can listen again to our discussion about uh, Cliff Richard. Um, well, yeah, if you, were not, if you were not in favour of Cliff Richard's privacy, you were not going to be in favour of Boris Johnson's. Well, no, well, but, but also it comes back to the strength of the privacy claim here. If we're thinking in terms of harm, what's the actual harm that's being done? He's trying to protect his reputation. What he's what he's trying to do is make sure this doesn't interfere with what he sees as the clear run to number ten. That this is the only issue that can potentially drag him down, or or at least slow him down. I don't think anything can can drag him down. I think he's he's a cert. But um, look, having having opened the door, and it, and it's not just the the. Um, the way in which the Conservatives have put their leader at the forefront of of their sales pitch. But it's also the way that the Conservative Party has consistently put the leader of the opposition in the public's mind as the reason why the Conservatives should stay in power. I mean, their entire uh, future political purpose seems to be hinge, seems to hinge on the fact that the alternative is a lot worse, and the alternative is Jeremy Corbyn. You are right that they have this. This particular party has gone down the route of personality politics, not just for themselves, but also in terms of the opposition, making things very simple. Uh, one, uh, a film of which I'm very, very fond is Moneyball. You know about about baseball in the United States, yeah, and that's all about uh, identifying good players to sign based on statistics rather than you know going and watching them and scouting them in the in the traditional sense. Mm. And one of the things that I mean, it's based it's based on a a, a, a fantastic book um, by uh, Michael Lewis, um, and one of the things that the uh, Sort of the guru behind the stats in this film, um, played by Jonah Hill, says is you know, what they aim to do is get it down to one number. Find the one statistic that tells you yes or no when it comes to signing a player. If you just find that one statistic, you can then rank everyone. What's the most important one? And that seems to me essentially what the Conservative Party is doing. They want to take very, very complex political issues and get them down to one thing. A name, a name rather than a number. But that's essentially what they've done. They've got it down to not 
whether democratic socialism is a good thing yeah. in all its many facets. Um, a good thing or a bad thing, and let's take on uh, left-wing economic policy versus right-wing economic policy or social conservatism against social liberalism. Um, they, they, they're not dealing with any of that. They've just got it down to not Jeremy. Yeah. Um, or back Teresa or back Boris. Um, it's it's a sim- it's it's a simplification device, and so I mean that that's not legally the issue. But what it does do is it gives us an important contextual political contextual background in which we're trying to conduct a very nuanced public interest test. Um in a situation where the public interest is being defined in extremely simplistic terms. Well, there, there's, there's that, but also I think this speaks to the, the privacy claim. We know that Boris isn't bringing a privacy claim, but, but if he were, it would be quite transparently to use that tort to protect a political goal uh, that he wants to achieve. Well, I don't because, see this as the protection of private life per se. It's not like the affair type scenarios that we see in uh, in um, CDE or even PJS. You know that this information damages this information if publicly known will damage my personal life. The point about Johnson is that his political goal and his personal life are inseparable. You, you, you cannot separate Boris the layman from Boris the politician and his whole political brand, as I think you've, you, you've highlighted very well, is based around the fact that you cannot separate the two. Um, so I, I have every sympathy with your point that when that happens, then your life has become a matter of political uh, of public scrutiny, and you cannot be allowed to shelter behind a tort on matters of public and uh, political interest. Um, yeah. I'm less quick to reach the conclusion you reach because a part of me still thinks, well, okay, you may have amalgamated your private life with your public life, but that, you know. Uh, whilst it may have the effect of making your private life more public, it also presumably, uh, you know, in pure philosophical terms, has the effect of making your public life more private. Um, it's, I, don't, I don't think it's as clear cut to go one way or the other. I think what it what it does is make things very very difficult for us. Well, if I can switch track briefly, then because. It- as is so often the case, I try and put these arguments across uh, from a theoretical perspective, thinking purely in terms of principle. But if I now sort of switch across and think in terms of the positive law and what that tells us, I think that also articulates my concern and gives me some support when I think about cases like Terry and Persons Unknown and YXB, where the judges in both cases were unsympathetic to the claimant's claims for several reasons. But one of the the reasons that comes through is this idea of an individual trying to use their private life 
instrumentally to protect what is otherwise commercial interest. So for Terry, it was the commercial interest in his sponsorship deals, which relied on the fact that he was had this clean-cut image, and which uh, the court seemed to think was the real thing that he was trying to protect through privacy law. So bringing that back to, to Bojo, I sort of see a similar thing happening here. You're trying to use private law to protect something else. And this was part of my issue. Of course, you'll remember with the Cliff Richard case that he was trying to use privacy to protect reputation. But of course, um, positive law doesn't help me much here because that's exactly what Article 8 says you can do. Yes, and the difficulty with Terry is it's not been the last word on that point. Um, Eric Berent wrote a useful comment ooh, a couple of years ago now on a couple of cases in which similar issues arose and where the court was not so uh, quick to dismiss the uh, privacy claim, um, although it acknowledged the, the difficulty where there seems to be an amalgamation of privacy and reputational concerns. And of course, Article 8 of the European Convention, Strasbourg jurisprudence tells us, as I've said before on this podcast, we've had a very similar discussion. Um, it tells us that reputation is an aspect of Article 8. And so it is part of private life, broadly conceived. But um, note these are important issues, and I think we've, we've flagged them up usefully here. Um, we're out of time, however. So we're going to have to bring it to a close there. And in bringing our discussion to a close today, we also draw to a close our first season. We say season or series. I don't know. I'm, using, I'm just using American terminology. No, series. Our first series. <laughs> okay. Uh, we will draw to a close our first series of the Media Law Podcast because it's the end of the academic year. Uh, uh, so we will not be recording over the summer. We will, however, be back in the autumn when uh, university life recommences after our academic hibernation. Um, we have some exciting ideas and uh, shows planned for the next series, so we will be back, and we hope you will be too to listen to us. Uh, until then, it is goodbye from Paul. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. This episode of the Media Law Podcast featured Tom Bennett, City, University of London, and Paul Rag, University of Leeds. It's been made possible by funding from both institutions. 